Hello, and welcome to The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast. I am your host, Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and with us today we have Mariana Van Zeller, the executive producer, correspondent, and host of the Nat Geo series, Trafficked. Welcome, Mariana. How are you today? So happy to have you here with us. Thank you so much, Stacey. I'm doing great. Thank you. And how have the last few months been for you as an investigative journalist? Have you been able to work? You know, I have. One thing that I discovered very early on, we spent, you know, the first two months essentially of the pandemic locked in my house. And then we started thinking of a way that we could go back in the field and start reporting on these issues. Because from what I was hearing from all my contacts is that black markets were actually expanding. You know, that's one thing that happens when there's an economic downturn is that people have to figure out ways to survive. And so we decided that we had to try to figure out a way that we could go back into production and do it in a safe way. And in July, we hit the ground running and have been reporting ever since on several different stories. And exactly what we thought was happening is, in fact, happening. I mean, black markets are still operating in many ways. They're sort of stronger and you know, more vibrant than ever. And it's in large part because of the pandemic and the effect that it's had on the economy. Wow. So a pandemic could not curb your intrepidness, I see, which is very impressive. So thank you for continuing to do that work. <laughs> and before we talk about this series trafficked on Nat Geo, I do want to talk a little bit about your background and how you got into investigative journalism. And I did read, and again, I always have to confirm everything I read online, that you attended the Columbia School of Journalism, as did I. So we're fellow alums. Oh, great. <laughs> and was also heartened to read that you did not get in the first year you applied, nor did I. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me how you convinced them to let you in. I'm happy that I'm not the only one out there with a story like that. You're not. <laughs> I decided I wanted to be a journalist when I was 12 years old, and I knew that my path to journalism in America was coming to one of America's amazing journalism schools. And I knew that Columbia University was the one essentially that I wanted to come to. And just so people know, you actually are from Portugal. Exactly. I'm from Portugal. And when I graduated school in Portugal, I immediately applied to Columbia's grad school of journalism and I didn't get in the first year. The second year I tried again and I was put in a wait list. So I was refused twice. <laughs> I got that over you. Oh, wow. <laughs> you do win. And the third year I decided that maybe it wasn't a bad idea to just fly to New York and uh, go to University, And so I did, and I knocked on the dean's door. I introduced myself, and we sat down and spoke for an hour, and I told him why I wanted to become a journalist. And that year, I was accepted, and it was one of the happiest days of my life. Oh, that makes me so happy. And the work you have done since, you have made a lot of us proud. So thank you so much for that. Oh, thank you. And, you know, when I hear the term trafficked, I think I know what it means. And the more I've watched of this series and the topics that you're investigating, which include guns, pimps, steroids, cocaine, scams, fentanyl, and counterfeiting, I think I understand what they all have in common. But for people who have heard this term, can you describe what all of these themes have in common and why they qualify under the umbrella term of trafficked? They're all black markets. They're all run by, a lot of times, criminal enterprises. They're all happening in underground, sort of secretive networks, very difficult to penetrate and to gain access to. And partly because of that, um, I have always been very drawn to those worlds. But also, in large part, I think most people don't know this, but we have entire networks out there and magazines and shows dedicated to 
analyzing the formal economy. We know every single thing that happens every day, every up and down of the economy and why it's happening and the impact that it has. And yet the informal economy actually makes up more than 60% of the global economy. And we know very little about what happens in that part, in that world. And the illegal trade alone brings in over $300 billion a year. It's a massive amount. I mean, it's, you know, more than a lot of countries bring in. I thought that with this series, that was really something that I wanted to sort of get to and try to understand and try to gain access to these criminal underworlds. And I'd never heard that term you just used, informal economy. That sounds like such a nice way of saying that this is all incredibly illegal. And those numbers you just threw out are just staggering. I would have never known that. So that adds a lot of heft to the work you're doing for sure. And part and parcel to everything that you're doing in the series and all of your work is gaining access to these people who are involved in all this criminal activity, which is scary. It's difficult. It's not something that comes easily in terms of process. What is the first thing that you do when you sit down to tackle a new element of trafficking? Well, I say that the first thing we do is start contacting local journalists. Ah, yes. I think we don't understand usually or we undervalue the importance of local journalists. A lot of times, you know, I've been reporting on these underworlds for over 15 years and I have contacts and sources all around the world. But a lot of the times, you know, our whole production in the field happens because of these incredibly super brave local journalists. People always ask, you do such incredibly dangerous work, and when you come back home, how do you feel about that? And I think one thing that usually gets lost in that conversation is that we have the privilege to come back home, right? And a lot of these local journalists stay in the country, and they're giving us these access into these worlds and because it is important for them to show us what is happening in their countries, in their communities. And then they're the ones who are stuck back and they have to stay behind. So they are really the heroes in these stories. So I'd say, yeah, we're incredibly dependent on these local journalists that we call fixers in our business. So that's always the first thing we do. We call our fixers and we start calling our sources because, again, I've been reporting on this for so long that I have sources all around the world. And it's trying to gain information and try to figure out if this is really a story and why is it important to tell this story now. And do you find, and I've always found journalists to be incredibly gracious and always willing to help, but do you find people very willing to share their sources because they are our most sacred properties and our, our most sacred assets? Are most people willing to turn over the names and numbers of people they've worked with? They are. I mean, ultimately, the goal is always the same. We all share that goal, the same goal, which is to tell the truth and to report on the reality, especially in these worlds, on the reality of what's happening on the grounds. You know, one thing that I think we've lost a little bit in journalism that I think is incredibly important is sort of the old school boots on the ground journalism. Being able to go to these countries, to these places, and, you know, gaining access to these worlds and seeing the reality for ourselves. I think we've become a little dependent on armchair experts and, I, and that's what I love about Nagio, you know, giving me the opportunity to go out and actually report real boots on the ground journalism. So ultimately, the goal is always the same, is always to bring back the truth and to sort of figure out what is really happening, what's the reality on the ground. Well, and it's also interesting as journalists at large have been under fire and had reputations sullied and decimated over the last four years in America, anything that we've gone through in America still pales in comparison to what journalists experience around the world and how their lives are threatened daily for the stories that they're telling. So to be part of that, I'm sure, is very powerful. 
That's exactly right. You know, a lot of the reporting that I've done in the past has been in Mexico, actually. And one of my closest friends is actually a Mexican journalist who I've worked with on numerous occasions. And one of his best friends was shot and killed by the cartel because he was reporting on things that the cartel didn't like him and didn't want him to be reporting on. And it's somebody that I'd met on a previous trip to Sinaloa. Again, it just goes to show how brave these local journalists are and also how important journalism is now more than ever. Again, when we're under attack all over the world, I mean, journalists are being killed in Mexico, being silenced in the Philippines and being called names here in the United States. It just goes to show that it's incredibly important for us to sort of stick together and keep on doing the work that is so important for everyone. I agree. And just to see someone like you doing this work on television and putting yourself out there in a very public way, I think is very powerful. Just the image of that, I think is sort of, we won't tolerate being shoved aside. So thank you for those optics. Oh, thank you. Do you have a plan when you go out to shoot? Do you have a loose agenda of what you hope to accomplish? And then how much room are you leaving for those inevitable breakthroughs that you hadn't planned on? It's such a good question because... We always do have a very sort of clear plan. Okay, this is what's happening from 9 to 11 a.m. on day one and from 2 to 4 p.m. And then more often than not, you hit the ground and everything changes. And I actually, I truly believe that the best stories are those that surprise us and that when we realize that actually what we thought was the reality is not. We go into the field with these preconceived ideas of what these stories are about or what these people and who are these traffickers. And then when we hit the ground and realize, actually, the story is not quite like that. There's a lot of gray there. You know, the trafficker, it's not so black and white. I think that's when you're sort of able to make the story richer in a way, more real, but also it's so much more varied and richer. You know, there's a funny story that happened with us. It's been my dream come true for years and years to do a series about black markets around the world. And finally, Nat Geo said, you know, greenlit this series and said, go ahead. And I was couldn't be happier. And we assembled this incredible team of people. And our first story was about counterfeiting. And it turns out that actually Peru, Peruvians are the number ones at making fake dollars in the entire world. So we headed to Lima, Peru to report on this story. And we'd spent months contacting local journalists and sources. And apparently we had this incredible access into this family that was running this counterfeit operation, this massive counterfeit operation. We were so excited. And, you know, high adrenaline, first day in Peru, we're meeting these people and everything is great. And we're meeting the family as it usually goes. We always have this sort of underworld, what I call the underworld first date, which is they want to meet us. They want to make sure that we're not law enforcement. They want to make sure that they can trust us, that we're journalists. And in these meetings, no cameras or microphones allowed. And we just sit around and eat and drink. There's a lot of drinking games involved. And in this particular one, we were doing this very strange Peruvian drinking game that involves putting part of the beer that we just drank, like the leftover in a glass, and then everybody has to drink from this. This was (laughs) (laughs) pre-pandemic, And we were drinking ceviche, which is the local dish, the national dish in Peru. It was delicious. And then towards the end, the main guy turns to me and looks at me and says, Mirena, my queen, tomorrow you're going to see amazing things, meaning that the door's to the kingdom of trafficking in Peru have just opened up and we're going to be able to film incredible things. And we were so excited, we went back and was like, okay, this is it, this is incredible, we got this, this is such a great beginning to this show. 
Now Gio was going to be so proud. <laughs> and the next day, you know, we had this meeting point and we got there. We waited and we waited and we waited. We waited six hours and they never showed up. And it was not a good beginning. And it was one of those moments that we thought of where this whole series depends on access. And if the first story we're doing, we're not getting that access, that doesn't bode well for our entire show. We had to start from scratch. So there's a tip, you know, the perfect example of you can plan all you want, but everything changes once you hit the ground. But then we were able to get that story. And it was even better than what we thought we were going to get. Well, it's hard too. And it's a rude awakening for someone who's truthful and honest. And you're being very transparent about your goals and the story you're trying to tell. And you have to remember, oh, I'm dealing with liars and schemers and people who do this for a living. So that must be kind of a hard pill to swallow. Absolutely. It turns out traffickers aren't the most punctual or reliable people sometimes. Shocking information, especially after they've been drinking all night, right? (laughs) (laughs) Although I had been drinking too, and I was able to show up on time. (laughs) So I'd actually love to play a clip from the Guns episode, which is really just stunning work in which you and one of your Mexican sources, a man named Miguel, are in the mountains outside Culiacan, and you are about to bear witness to the delivery of some weapons from the U.S. And in this clip, we hear you and Miguel discussing the terms of filming with the armed Sicarios, who are there to make sure that the delivery happens, and what could possibly take place if law enforcement intervenes. So let's take a listen to that. It's a situation in which the Marines or the Army comes, they're going to fight them, but we... Do not run. We just stay, stay low. Where we are? Stay low. So we're Go. going to be in the middle of a, of a, a shootout? It's possible. I mean, it's very unlikely, but it's a possibility. So one of the few moments in the series, I hear fear in your voice, and this is one of those moments. And I wanted to know how you felt hearing Miguel kind of tell you, I don't know what's going to happen, and potentially a shootout could take place. And how did you feel even just as a human being in that moment? Scared, for sure. There was a moment of doubt. I wasn't sure if it was a good idea to proceed, to go forward with this. You know, one thing that I think most people don't realize is that once we actually get access to these worlds, for example, once we get the green light to enter Sinaloa territory and to be with members of the Sinaloa cartel, we are sort of protected by them. So in a strange sense, I almost feel safer when I'm in their territory, because I know that it is against their interest for anything to happen to us, to American journalists. I usually feel very protected and safe. But in that case, as we're entering that area, when Miguel, who's our local fixer, local journalist, one of my very good friends, and when he tells me, you know, what he just heard from the sicarios, from the gunmen, that there is a chance because they've had Marines coming into their territory in the past few days. And that's information that I hadn't been given before. And that changes the equation because that means, like Miguel said, that if the Marines come, if the military comes, that there could be a shootout and we're going to be stuck in the middle of that. And we stopped for a second and we decided that we should just continue and go and, and, you know, take that risk. I mean, that being said, of course, none of us, no one in my team and definitely not myself, think that a life is worth a story is worth the risk. But in that case, you know, I always say that between sort of fear and curiosity, 
curiosity always wins, always. And this incredible profession that I have where they actually pay me to satisfy my own curiosity, which I pinch myself every day for that. We decided we were going to go and we spent the whole afternoon with these sicarios explaining to us first time they killed a person and showing us how they train and what kind of guns they use and all that. And then towards the end, they carry these walkie-talkies with them everywhere. There's communication, constant chatter on the walkie-talkie. So any stranger enters the territory, they're warned. If there's anything happening, there's constant communication between all the members of the cartel in that area. And so we were hearing this chatter as we're interviewing them. And suddenly we realized chatter is just getting louder and louder. And there's something definitely happening. And they turned to us and they said, okay, this is it. There's a helicopter, marine helicopter coming towards us. So it's time to pack up our bags and run. And it was a crazy moment. We had all our gear everywhere. We were packing everything super fast. I mean, we were running out of there. And when we get to this open field where our car is parked, still very much in Sinaloa cartel territory, and a moment where we have to decide, do we hide and act suspicious? And then if they see us hiding, they're going to think that we're part of the cartel. Or do we just proceed, get into our cars and drive out into this open field and become sort of open targets? And it was nerve-wracking. It was completely nerve-wracking. And you'll have to see the episode to see what happens next. <laughs> it is incredibly nerve-wracking. And I'm glad, as far as I could tell, no one was injured that day, which is kind of a miracle. So I think anyone listening to this and people who watch the show, like me, they probably will have this lingering question is, why do these people allow you access into the inner workings of this criminal activity? What do they possibly gain from this They're putting their lives on the line even more so than they already are on a daily basis. Why would they open themselves up for this? It's a combination of different things. I think ego plays a large part in it. You know, being able to sort of show, especially in this part of the world in Sinaloa and in Mexico, where there's a lot of wearing cartels and they're all trying to show that they're more powerful than the other. And this is in a way sort of their opportunity to talk about how powerful they are and how dangerous and violent they are and show their power. In a lot of ways, it's also some of these traffickers, you know, they are the best at doing what they do. We interviewed, for example, a counterfeiter in Peru who finishes these bills by hand to make them look exactly like real $100 bills. And he's one of the best in the entire world at doing this. And his family doesn't know he does this. No one around him knows he does this. And he's incredibly proud of his work. And by talking to us, he was given this opportunity to share what he's passionate about and what he's so good at doing. And then in a way, there's also a lot of people who just want to tell us their story and want to share with us. These are sort of the most stigmatized and stereotyped people in our society, right? criminals. And this is their chance to show us that they're not bad people. They want to show us what led them to that life. And this, again, is their opportunity to share, to have somebody listen to them. I had a similar conversation for this podcast with Nick Quested and Sebastian Younger, who were documenting the immigration crisis in the caravan and also had amazing access to people who were packaging drugs and smuggling them over the border. And the word that kept coming up with them was this need to humanize what they do. And I see this a lot in your series as well, sort of, I'm a human trying to survive. This is just the way I've chosen to live to be able to live. Absolutely. I think that was one of my main goals with this series, incredibly important to me, is to be able to sort of show, it's the way that I've approached the journalism that I do, which is not to judge. I'm truly trying to understand what led them to lead this life. 
and try to figure out what makes them tick. You know, we shouldn't be approaching our subjects or our stories with judgment. And, it, you know, especially in these criminal worlds, I think in a strange, twisted way, there's actually a lot that we can learn from the power structures and the way that these criminal organizations are run. And especially if we're trying to do something to combat this, this crime, you know, knowledge is key. The only way that you'll be able to combat this is to figure out what makes a person a criminal and what makes a person do criminal activities. And so that's always been the main approach. And then one thing that I've seen again and again and again, you know, is that these traffickers, and I think this is surprising, and again, one of the main goals for me in this series is that these traffickers are actually a lot more like us than we like to admit. They're people, they're human beings with mothers and fathers and daughters and sons, and they're trying to make the best out of their lives, and they're trying to provide for their families. And that's the hard truth, <laughs> and that is the reality. Well, and also I think America at large, a lot of what I've learned watching the show is how complicit we are also in a lot of these enterprises, no matter what is being trafficked, so to speak. And I think that's also a reason that a lot of people don't want these stories to get out because they show how endemically we are also contributing to these conditions that are driving people to do this work. Absolutely. I mean, even drug users in America, for example, and I'm not even talking about heroin users, I'm talking about people recreationally using drugs, whether it's marijuana or others. On the one hand, they have weed in their hand and they're smoking it. And on the other hand, they're sort of criticizing criminals and, uh, you know, pointing the finger at Mexicans for bringing these drugs into America. And that's hypocritical. And I think it also stems from a lack of sort of knowledge. You can't be a consumer and then criticize the people that are selling it and be a part of that economy and then criticize the people that are making a living out of that economy. And I would love to talk about your decision to place yourself so prominently in the series. You could have easily been just the narrator. You could have been a voice that we heard, but someone we don't see on screen. How important is it to you to have yourself be seen as the person navigating the story for the viewer? I'm hoping that it's a way for viewers to connect with these stories. A lot of the stories we tell happen in sort of faraway places with people that at first sight we don't have a lot in common with. And so sometimes it's difficult for us to connect. And I'm hoping that with this series and with my role in this series, with the way that I react to people telling me their stories, whether, you know, I become emotional or I'm scared or, you know, leading always with curiosity and empathy. I hope that that's a way for viewers to connect with these faraway worlds and to actually realize that whatever is happening in these far off places has an impact on everyone, on people's daily lives right here in America. So on a w one hand, it's sort of an emotional connection that I hope happens through me. And on the other hand, a sort of informational understanding of how our world is all interconnected and how these black markets have a real impact in people's lives. It's interesting. You talking about that made me think about, this seems like a strange comparison, but remembering when Princess Diana went into these communities where children had AIDS and went to hospitals where no one wanted to go because it was just too ugly and scary. And just seeing someone who looked like her giving love and kindness to people who hadn't received love and kindness, it, it's such a striking, maybe the disparity of the images. But I think it does speak to some, uh, a little bit of what you're talking about. It's interesting now that you say it. 
One of the fears that I have is that people, by watching this series, because we do penetrate these dangerous underworlds, that it's going to make them scared about the world around them. And that's absolutely not what we want to do. And I hope that the takeaway is actually the opposite, is that to understand that, yes, these black markets are all around us. A lot of the scenes we shot for traffic actually happened just 10, 15 minutes away from my house in Los Angeles. I couldn't believe it. These black markets are all around us, but on the other hand, you know, the fact that with this series we're able to show what's happening in these black markets and to sort of demystify it in a way, and by humanizing people, I'm hoping that they will look around and not see the world as a scary place, but see it as a beautiful, crazy, insane place that we live with so much opportunity for empathy and understanding and for love. I would love to talk now about how social media has helped you do your job and also how it helps the criminals do their jobs. And I was very struck by the scene in the Pimps episode where you're actually scrolling through Instagram to try to find people to profile people to speak to. And you do end up finding a few folks, but you said not as easily as you would have hoped. But just the idea that I can just go to this very consumer-friendly site that I use or this app, I guess, so to speak, and find people who are engaged in this activity seems so absurd But tell me a little bit about that process for you and how it's impacted your ability to gain access to people. It was crazy to me to find out, and that happens not just with pimps, not just with sex trafficking, but with other black markets, that in the vast majority of times, actually, the transactions and the buying and selling are actually done out in the open. So it's actually not very hard to find these criminal worlds and to get in touch with these traffickers. Obviously, the hard part is actually convincing them to talk to us. And so in the episode we did on pimps and sex trafficking, I mean, we contacted almost 100, if not more, pimps through social media. And they have very open accounts and they flaunt their women and they talk openly about their business. And as a way to actually recruit more women and to recruit people, you know, clients. So we contacted dozens of them and got immediate no's from the vast majority of them. And then we got a handful that agreed to talk to us. And then they said yes, they were okay with being filmed. And then the same thing happens where you show up and they don't show up. Or the day before they call you and they say they don't feel comfortable with it. And a lot of times it's just trust. They just aren't sure if we're real journalists or if we're law enforcement, which is understandable. But in the end, we're actually able to speak to quite a few of them. And so in that case, social media helped, but it took a long time to get there. But yeah, it's just crazy how out in the open these markets are. You know, I once bought an AK-47 out of a Taco Bell parking lot, and it took me about 30 minutes to go online, find it for sale. And this was for a story. I wasn't actually buying it personally, but it was for a story I was doing on guns in America. And right after that, I went to a bar to sort of celebrate the fact that we'd done a whole day of shooting and we'd gotten all these very insightful scenes. And I get there and I ask for a beer and I didn't have my ID with me and they didn't give me a beer, but yet I had an AK-47 in my car. Oh boy. Is there a more consummately American story than that? I think not. (laughs) (laughs) So in referencing the Pimps episode, I'd actually like to play a clip from that episode. And this features you driving in the car with a retired pimp whose memoir you found online. Again, can't make this stuff up. A man named Mickey, who seemed actually quite nice and normal. And it's the two of you driving through the streets of LA and seeing dozens and dozens of women barely wearing any clothing at all, freezing, standing on street corners. So let's take a listen to that. I want to know how the business of pimping really works. 
Mickey offers to take me for a tour of the most infamous track in L.A. Where are we heading? Where are we going? Oh, we're headed to Figueroa. It's referred to as the track, the blade. It's been around since the 60s. We're talking about 95 blocks. Wow. 95 blocks. How dangerous is it, do you think? It's extremely dangerous. You got the tricks you have to worry about. You have upset in the pimp you have to worry about. Kidnappings, stabbings, shootings, plenty of them. You're talking about a profession where sexual assault and rape are just occupational daily hazards. This clip specifically for me, as a woman who is a journalist, speaks to, and whether or not we want to admit it, the power of being a woman in this situation versus a male journalist. Tell me about how you think your being female impacts the connections that you're able to make, especially in this particular scene, which I think, he, again, he's sort of showing off his wisdom. He's kind of spouting all these facts and kind of like a mayor, you know, giving a tour of his hometown. You can tell he's kind of proud that he knows this stuff. But I do think part of this is that you are female and you're allowing him to tell his story. So tell me a little bit about your relation to your gender in these moments. That was a really hard one for me in that episode, um, speaking to these pimps and the way they treat women. That was really hard. You know, again, I talk a lot about empathy and trying to understand the people that talk to me. But in that case, it was very hard to... I can only imagine. ...to be empathetic or understanding. But I would say I've always seen it as a huge advantage to be a woman reporting on these issues. A lot of times I think it's because we are less threatening for them, so they feel it's less of a threat to talk to us, so they open up more as women. I feel that again and again. I also think that there's, I'm going back to the word empathy, and it's aware that I talk a lot about it, but I do think that we tend to approach our subject more of trying to understand, which is obviously very important for me. But again, it doesn't always happen that way. There was one scene in that episode where we were interviewing a pimp called Jack Knife, and I was asking him, if he was ever violent towards his women. And he said, oh, no, there was just one situation. I'm never violent. I'm very kind to them. There was one situation, however, where one of my girls ran away, and I found her, and I brought her back, and I cut her feet. And I asked, with a knife? And he said, no, with a razor blade. And that sent a message to the other women that if they ever try to run off, this is what can happen to them. And that was a really difficult moment. It's hard to find the humanity in a moment like that. Yes, absolutely. Very hard to find the humanity. But then I continued. I stayed there. I stayed calm, continued asking questions. And you hear his whole story. And I'm definitely not excusing any of that behavior. But once you actually hear his story and you put it into perspective and the neighborhood he grew in and the family he came from and the violence he saw since he was a kid and who were considered the heroes in his neighborhood and they were all pimps, you know, you sort of start looking at him in a different way. Again, what he did was awful, and I'm not excusing that, but I do think that contextualizing it is always important. Right, and if that is his point of reference for success and masculinity, then that's the only thing he has to emulate. And I think that the point is then going to the root and saying, how do we stop a child from being ingratiated into that culture in the first place? Exactly. It's the importance of trying to understand what makes a trafficker a trafficker. And without understanding that, we're never going to be able to stop or combat these criminal networks. Tell me a little bit about your crew and how consistent it is shoot to shoot. Are you hiring a lot of locals depending on the country in which you're reporting? Or do you have the same stable of people you're traveling with all over the world? 
It's the same crew almost all over the world. I mean, we have a director of photography who used to be a director of photography for Parts Unknown with Anthony Bourdain. We have a camera operator. We have a sound person. And those are always with me. We travel all around the world together. And then the director and the producer change according to story. But we've become very much family. You know, one thing that was important for me from the beginning was that I wanted to make sure that the crew that was traveling with me to all these places, first that they had sort of the the stamina to stay there and to report on these stories. But also, I really wanted them to be people that I'd be able to, at the end of the day, go down to a bar and share a beer with. (laughs) Because this work is really heavy. We listen to some very tragic stories, and we're in very tragic situations sometimes. And so it's very important to me at the end of a shoot day, whether it's late at night or whenever that is, we all get together, we all share a drink, and we all talk about what happened that day and what we think and how fascinating it was or how difficult it was and the weight that we carry. And so, yeah, so that drink at the end of the day is incredibly important. Sort of classic war correspondent bonding, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I notice in the series a lot of drone shots. And I would love to know how that technology specifically helps you tell stories and what has been a cool shot that you are really excited that you were able to get that, you know, maybe five years ago you wouldn't have dreamed of being able to capture. One of the drone shots we got was on the border between Mexico and the U.S. And I'm driving on the Mexican side and the drone is actually on the U.S. side and it's filming me through the fence at the same time as I'm driving. And that was an incredible shot. We, with our drone operator, who's Josh Flanagan, he's incredible. And he does, you know, some very risky thing. We've lost, (laughs) we're on drone number three. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) RIP. Yeah, I mean, it sort of pays off because the drone shooting is incredible. You know, being at the top of churches and seeing birds flying off at sunrise or, you know, being on the other side of the border and being able to see the wall, the infamous wall uh, separating the two is is really incredible. It's very cool and very stylish. I mean, these stories are very tough, but you may as well package them in very cool ways, right? It was sort of a challenge that Nagio put to us. I've been reporting on these worlds and doing stories about the underworld for many years now. And usually the easier way to get access into these worlds is to have sort of small crew. And a lot of the times it was just, when we started, it was just myself and my husband. And we travel all around the world and tell these stories and he'd be filming and I'd be reporting. And then we put the whole story together. I'd be editing and he'd be writing next to me. And it was just the two of us. And it really helped sort of gain access into these worlds. But we had this challenge. This is National Geographic. It also has to look beautiful. And I wasn't sure if it was going to work or if it was going to hinder our access. But now we travel six, seven people with, uh, I don't know, 20 cases of gear all around the world. <laughs> so it's a lot more than what I initially wanted. But in a sense, we actually have been able to access these worlds. And we have been able to sort of combine this access with cinematography, which I don't think has ever been done this way. I also think too, and we can't undermine the idea that audiences will be more engaged if they feel like they're watching something cinematic as opposed to sort of a grainy PBS. And I love PBS, but there's something about this that it's real life action. It's real life thrillers. So if it sort of has that veneer of a thriller, I will feel more engaged. Absolutely. You know, one thing that I get a lot is when we showed some of these episodes, even though they haven't premiered yet, to some of my friends. And one of the first things they say is like, it looks like a Hollywood movie. And that makes me so happy because I agree. I mean, 
Our director of photography is a, actually a French guy called Fred Manu, and he's just incredible, one of the most talented people. It's just the opportunity and the privilege to work with him and see the world through his eyes. Everything looks so stunningly beautiful. Well, if he is French, it's obviously an art form for him. So <laughs> He's also a pain in the butt sometimes <laughs> because he's French. <laughs> you said that. I did it. <laughs> I'm Portuguese, so I can say that. <laughs> you grew up closer to France than I did, that's for sure. <laughs> so I'm wondering, in a lot of these scenes, you know, you have incredible access. You have sourcing information that could potentially help authorities not, you know, end these problems, but certainly, you know, crack down on small little syndicates. Do you ever feel conflicted about not being able to bring that information to police and law enforcement and say, hey, here's my entire source list, do your thing? No. My job is there to be there as a witness and to bring back that information to the viewers. My job is not to be informing law enforcement. And if that was my job, then no one would talk to me. Right. The one advantage that I have is access to these worlds. And as journalists, we take that very, very seriously. One of our number one missions is to protect our sources and to make absolutely sure that they don't run into trouble because of us and because of the time they have given us. But that being said, there have been a few situations where I've been very conflicted, not about whether I was going to talk to law enforcement or the authorities about what I was seeing, but my role in witnessing it. One of the episodes is about fentanyl trafficking, and I've been covering the opioid crisis for several years now. I started in 2008 doing a report about Oxycontin and have followed that up with a lot of reporting on the opiate epidemic in this country. And I've spent many days uh, with particularly mothers who have lost their loved ones, uh, their children, to the opiate epidemic. And I was in a situation while reporting on the fentanyl story where we were filming with a drug mule who is a person who traffics drugs from Mexico into the U.S. And in this case, this drug mule actually happened to be a woman. And she was pregnant. So I interviewed her. She told me that she had kids and she was pregnant and that she's actually an American citizen and she was coming into the United States, in that case, with a car loaded with fentanyl. And we saw the fentanyl being wrapped up. We saw it being hidden in her car. And then she said, if you guys want, you can follow me and see me cross the border because she had done this so many, so many times that she wasn't nervous and she was very confident that she was not going to run into any trouble. Meanwhile, my heart was racing the whole time. And so here we are, I find myself on the border and crossing the border and we see her. Her car is right there and we see her going in. And there was definitely a moment there that I got very conflicted um, because all I could think about was all these mothers that I've seen, that have opened up their hearts, that I've spent, you know, days listening to their suffering and their crying over the death of their loved ones. And I couldn't stop thinking, what would they think of me right now? Seeing these drugs, fentanyl, which is the most dangerous drug in America, going into the U.S., knowing full well the effects of these drugs and the consequences that come with them. You know, the fact that this batch of drugs could actually go into the U.S. and kill people. And that was really, really hard for me. Um, obviously, I wanted the drugs not to go across. I wanted her to be caught. And on the other hand, I had just spent a day with this woman. And she was also a mother. It was really, really, really difficult for me to just be a witness in that situation. I'm sure. Well, you handled it the best you could, it sounds. And you know, we talk a little bit about law enforcement what have you learned are the biggest obstacles? Why are these so hard to eradicate? And there's a scene for me that sticks out as being very emblematic of this is the guns episode where you sat down with an ATF agent named Carlos. 
and you sort of outline all this stuff that you've learned and this crazy statistics. And he simply says, well, welcome to my world. And he seems just as exasperated about it as we might be hearing about it. So what have you learned in general about how local authorities seem to be hamstrung, not only by resources, but also the laws that we have on the books? I think a lot of times it's just lack of information. It's a lack of will of addressing the real roots of the problem. We can try and stop the flow of drugs. We can build all the walls we want. And yet the majority of the drugs are actually coming across the legal ports of entry. And the reason why this drug trade exists in Mexico, I'm just giving the drug trade as an example in black markets, but it's very similar to any other black market. It's because there is a demand. So without addressing the demand, we will never be able to tackle the issue. And also without addressing the root causes. What is it, again, and this is why it's so important to me to gain access and to sort of see the reality from the ground of why these things are happening. Why is it that a young teenager in let's say Peru, for example, once a week carries 20 pounds of cocaine in a backpack out of the Amazon and out into the world that's then going to be smuggled to the U.S. and other parts of the world. What leads a 17, 18-year-old kid to do this? And in the show, one of the most memorable interviews was talking to a group, they're called mochileros, and they carry these huge backpacks you know, for three or four days without sleeping in these really dangerous smuggling routes. They've seen their friends being killed by people who try to steal their merchandise, the cocaine or their money. And it's awful, awful work. And I asked one of them, like, why do you do this? Everything you're doing is illegal. It's criminal. Why do you do it? And his answer was, you know, I've always wanted to go to college. I've always wanted to be a journalist. And I come from a very poor family. And I realized very early on that I was never going to be able to reach my dreams unless I'd start working myself. And the only work available here is drug trafficking. So I got in the business and I'm saving money. And I really, truly hope that one day I'll be able to become a dentist. And I said, why a dentist? He said, because I want to be able to make people smile, big smiles. And again, you know, it's, we can judge, we can point the fingers and we can say that all drug traffickers are bad people. But that's not going to help the conversation. And until we address the roots of the problems and why is it that young men in Peru, for example, feel a need to join the drug trafficking world, then we'll never be able to combat it. It's definitely easier to villainize than sympathize and listen. And as someone who watched the series, I really do feel like I understand so much more about these root causes and that these marketplaces exist at all. And I'm wondering, lastly, what do you hope viewers take away beyond that, beyond the understanding root causes what is the sort of plan to action? What Now that we've acknowledged and seen these stories unfold, what can viewers do to help make a difference? I wish I had a different answer for you, but again, it really is about just knowledge and understanding and trying to figure out why these worlds exist and really concentrating on the information that we have at hand that I'm hoping viewers will get from watching this show. You know, there's really horrific things happening around us every day. You know, there's all around violence in Latin America, people being killed because of guns that are coming from the United States. You know, there are women, American women, beaten up and trafficked and forced to have sex with men again and again repeatedly. There's, you know, elderly people who are committing suicide because they're being scammed. It's really horrific stories that are happening all around us, not very far away. I mean, in many cases, just literally in your backyard or next door. And without addressing the root problems and without 
understanding why these markets exist and why these traffickers operate the way they do, we were going to continue to live in darkness. And that's something that I really hope this show brings is a very, very bright light into these worlds. I understand you're also launching a companion podcast to Trafficked. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it will complement the series? Yeah, absolutely. It's actually my first foray into the world of podcasts, so I'm super excited about this one. You know, with the TV series, we sort of tackle these big stories and big issues with all these underworld characters. But with the Traffic podcast, we really focus on one story, one trafficker or criminal, and sort of the rise and fall of this one trafficker. And through that rise and fall, we also tell the story of sort of the larger picture. It premieres December 3rd, the day right after uh, the premiere of Trafficked, the TV show. We have some incredible guests such as Heidi Fleiss, uh, the former madam, and Tony Bosch, who essentially injected the world of sports with steroids, and a bunch of other incredible guests. I'm super excited about it. Thank you so much for risking so much and your time and safety and just even dedicating your life to this. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Stacey. So great to talk to you. You too. I'd like to thank Mariana Venzeller for joining me today. For more information on Trafficked, please visit natgeotv.com slash FYC. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and this has been The Making Up, a Nat Geo podcast. Thank you for listening. The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast, is a National Geographic production. Executive producers, Stephanie Montgomery and Chris Alpert. Host, Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Writers and producers, Dave Beesing, Thomas Green, Jason Jackson, Kevin Horton, and Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Associate producer, Shanna Blackman. And production coordinator, Juliana Parisi. In association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands. <laughs>